we are going to um, we're going to finish uh, very quickly rule number three. That's where we were, right? And then we will go into rule number four. All right, so someone uh, give us a, a summary of what we talked about last week in rule number three. Historical narratives are to be interpreted by the didactic. What is a historical narrative first and foremost? Okay, so we're talking about um, historical events that are recorded in the Scripture. Um, so they're typically what we would call the Bible stories. They're um, they're accurate historical events as recorded in the scriptures. So that's historical narrative. There's facts. They have the flow of a story. Uh, they're written in chronological order of, uh, of events. Uh, so that's historical narrative. And what parts of the scripture do we read uh, that is historical narrative? What are some of the parts of the Bible that are considered historical narrative? Okay, the Gospels have a lot of narrative in them. Very good. What else? Okay, the book of Acts is a historical narrative on the beginning of the church, right? What else? Okay, the, um, the vast majority of what we call the books of the law, uh, the first five books, the Pentateuch in the Bible, and then uh, several parts of other books. The first two chapters of Job are historical narrative and then uh, several other parts. Some of the prophets have some historical narrative. Um, the first few chapters of the book of Revelation. So um, there is some historical narrative throughout the Bible. So these parts of the Bible are to be interpreted by understanding, looking at uh, the didactic portions of Scripture. What does didactic mean? Okay, that to uh, something that is didactic is something that teaches or instructs us. So there are specific books in the Bible that are written specifically to teach us something. What books are we talking about when we uh, talk about the didactic books? The, there are parts of the Gospels and the teachings of Jesus that are didactic in nature, certainly. What else? What's the bulk of the didactic teaching in the Bible? Okay, the writings of, uh, of Paul, the, the apostles in general, John, Peter, James, these are didactic portions of Scripture. So it's not, uh, he's not writing, uh, they're not writing historical um, narratives, they're not writing stories of this happened and then this happened, but rather they're giving instruction, theological, typically instruction, uh, theological application. How do we work through these things and apply them to the Christian life? And so, as we read the Bible, it's very important that when we read the stories, when we read about uh, Jonah, when we read about Noah, when we read about creation, when we read about the Tower of Babel, all of these things that we come to in the Scriptures, it's important that we understand them in light of the theological teaching that we receive in the other portions of Scripture and primarily the writings of the apostles in the New Testament. These are men who were Jews. They knew the Old Testament Scriptures far better than any of us ever will collectively. And uh, they, um, they understood what was being taught out of that in light of Christ's ministry, Christ's coming, dying, being resurrected from the dead. 
And so it's important that we read the Old Testament with a firm understanding and knowledge of what is being taught in the New Testament. It helps us to interpret all of those stories. What do they actually mean? It gives great meaning to, this, uh, to uh, our understanding of Abraham and Isaac. When, what happened with Abraham and Isaac? One of you over here, tell us. Abraham and Isaac. Okay, what was he what was he what did God tell him to do? Okay, very good. So God tells Abraham, take your son, your only son that you've waited almost a hundred years for, Isaac, take him on top of this mountain, collect some wood, and you are going to put him on the altar and sacrifice him. Um that that story doesn't make any sense to us unless we understand what is to come in the New Testament particularly in the work of Jesus. That story is written to show us and to show the people before Christ what was yet to come in the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus, that God the Father would sacrifice God the Son on behalf of others. And so uh, hopefully you know the rest of the story, when God provided a, a ram instead and that was sacrifice, and they came back down the hill. So uh, to be able to read that story in light of the rest of the story, if you're a Paul Harvey fan, if you're a little bit older, you know who I'm talking about. Uh, if, if, you can, if you can read the story of Abraham and Isaac knowing what comes at the cross of Christ, it makes a whole lot of sense. If you read it without that understanding... Um, then we're, we're just sort of confused by the whole thing and some bad theology has been developed by that story alone um, because of not reading it in light of the teaching in the New Testament. So it's very, very important uh, that we, we read that way. Another thing is that when we read historical narrative, the Bible uses... Uh, what's called phenomenological language. Phenomenological language. It's P-H-E-N, P-H-E-N-O-M-E-N, O-L-O-G-I-C-A-L. P-H-E-N-O-M-E-N, O-L-O-G-I-C-A-L. It's a big word. Phenomenological. Does anyone know what that means? It simply means that the Bible has been written in human language. The, the language that we use, and for us it's English obviously, but human language in general. The biblical writing, it's either Hebrew or Greek or certain sections that were written in Aramaic. Human language is how God has communicated to us. It's how we understand things. Um, so the Bible uses human language to describe God and his works. Now, it's very important that we understand how this plays out because we can only go so far in our description of God using our language. We'll never be able to fully describe God using the terms that we have. Um, so 
uh, it's important that we recognize when we read something about the hand of God. Is this literally talking about God reaching out from heaven with his hand and doing something? No, but it's a, a, a reference that we have to be able to understand exactly what God is doing in a specific situation. Now, a lot of skeptics or those who want to reject the Bible have used this to say that uh, human language is an inadequate to describe God and therefore the Bible can't be trusted. And that is just uh, silly. Uh, Our language may not be perfect, but it is adequate for us to understand. After all, God created language, and God communicated to us and chose to reveal himself through language. Uh, So if if it wasn't sufficient, then he would have chosen another means. But he hasn't. He's chosen the Word. And as you read through the Bible, uh, the Word and talk about the Word is very important. And so uh, words are sufficient, um, but they're not complete. But when the writers of the Bible describe the world around them, the only thing they're able to utilize in order to do that are the words of human language. So um, the things that they see and experience um, are not necessarily with all of the Uh, the full knowledge of the scientific and technological precision that maybe we have today or in the way that God created it. Um, Some of those things God has revealed uh, through what we call um, common grace, that all men everywhere have the ability to learn and understand and experience the grace of God. Um, but that doesn't mean it's, it's wrong because it doesn't go into the uh, specific details of how something works scientifically. So I want to give you a few examples to explain what I'm talking about. Um, does anyone know why Galileo was excommunicated from the church? Does anyone know who Galileo is, first of all? Okay, he's an astronomer, yeah, scientist. Okay, he believed, he had the crazy wild idea that the earth rotated around the sun. And so when he presented this view, um, they thought he was nuts and they got him out of the church. They said he was a heretic. This is called uh, heliocentricity, that the earth revolves around the sun. So our solar system centers around the sun. That's over against geocentricity, which is the idea that they had in the days of Galileo, that the solar system revolved around the earth. Um, So which one is it? Obviously, Galileo was right, wasn't he? Now, as we read the scriptures, do we read anything that tells us that the solar system revolves around the earth? No. It's a simple assumption based upon what we are able to observe with the human eye. Um, We don't find anywhere in the Bible that teaches us, remember, the didactic portion of Scripture. Nowhere in the teaching portions of Scripture do we see anything saying that the earth is the center of our solar system. So the Bible's not wrong in any way. Um, In the narratives, in fact, the sun is described as moving across the heavens. This is where the early church had their understanding that the center of the solar system was the earth. Because when we look at the sun, what do we see? We see the sun moving throughout the day, right? 
That's why sundials work and our shadows move. The sun moves across the heavens. Well, is that really what's happening? Is the sun actually moving in the sky? What's, what's happening? What's actually happening? We're turning, right, in two directions, kind of like this. Yes, turning and rotating. Okay, so is it wrong to talk about the sun moving through the sky? Well, no, we're using human language to describe what we see and understand. Wrong conclusions have been drawn by using that human language about what is actually happening. Um, it's, it's really amazing how people reject the Bible on the grounds of this type of language. But this phenomenological language is used in modern science all the time. So uh, consider if you turn on the TV uh, tonight and watch the weather report. They don't call it necessarily a weather report. It's a meteorological survey. Um, they show charts and maps. They use technological nomenclature that no one understands. They talk about high-pressure centers and aeronautical uh, perturbations and vortices and all of these things that they use and eventually get it wrong anyway. They talk about wind velocity, barometric pressure, the chances of precipitation tomorrow. And then at the very end of it all, the man says, sunrise tomorrow will be at 6.15 a.m. Sunrise? You're going to use all of this technical jargon and then you're going to talk about the sun rising? That's not technically correct, is it? Does the sun rise? No, we turn to see the sun more clearly than where we were a few hours ago. And so it's silly to look at something and say, well, it uses human language to describe it. Just, It's not accurate. We can't put our trust in the scriptures. Well, they're doing the same thing. They're trying to describe the, who wants to watch the news report and hear them. Uh, we, will, we will turn at the point where we uh, gain visibility of the sun at 6.15 tomorrow morning. Um, so we're using the language of man in order to communicate things that are true about the universe. Um, we're not going to phone the TV station and uh, protest that there's some conspiracy uh, to, uh, to get us back to understanding that the earth is the center of the solar system. It's, uh, it's foolish. So part of that, too, is just as a side note, um, we don't read the Bible as though it's a scientific textbook. It's not. The Bible is not a scientific textbook. It reveals truths to us about things we understand scientifically. Um, nothing that the Bible has said that is of a scientific, creative nature has ever been proven false. But in and of itself, it doesn't provide all the information that we understand how God has created the universe to function. Um, so we understand that to be a language that has been used in order to communicate to mankind using man's language. Any questions about any of that before we push on to rule number four? Or thoughts? All right, number four. The implicit is to be interpreted by the explicit. What is something that is implicit? Something that's implied. There we go. Very good. Well, you got to say it loudly. Okay. 
So those things that are implied or uh, we can say that aren't very clear in Scripture, there's a lot of Scripture that's not entirely clear. We need to interpret those using the parts of Scripture that are explicit. What do we mean by explicit? They're very clear. There's no, no doubt about it. It's very glaring, very obvious. Um, I want to give some examples of what this looks like. But there are places we're going to read in the Scriptures, we're going to read something, and we can draw a whole lot of conclusions, perhaps, out of portions of Scripture, but they may not be correct because um, the Bible only maybe hints at something or just gives a passing reference to something. Well, instead of drawing a bunch of conclusions at something that the Bible only mentions in passing, instead we need to go find other places in the Scripture that talk about that in greater detail and use those portions that speak in greater detail to help us understand the parts that are not as clear. So, for example, perhaps you've heard about angels, that they, are, uh, that they, don't, have a, uh, they don't have a sex. They're not male or female. Have you ever heard anyone talk about that? Angels aren't male or female, they're, they're angels. Well, let's see where that idea comes from. Go to Mark chapter 12. Mark 12, someone read for us verse 25. There we go, thank you. All right, so Jesus is teaching about man when he dies and goes to heaven. In heaven, there is no marriage. We're not married anymore in heaven. We don't get married. We're not given in marriage. We don't have our spouse anymore. He says, but we are like the angels in heaven. Well, many have taken that to understand that uh, we, one false teaching here is that we become angels. We don't become angels. Uh, other parts of the Bible are very clear about that. First Corinthians 15 specifically. Angels don't rise from the dead. They are eternal beings, Right? But specifically, what I want to look at is people read this to imply that in heaven, specifically among the angels, there is not male or female. Is that what the text says? Do we get that from the text? No. What, do, what is it saying clearly about the angels? That they're not what? Married. That's it. Does that mean that they can't be married because they're all men or women or they're neither that's not what that means it simply means they're not married period so you see to draw conclusions from the text that we're reading into that that's not what the text says we need to be very careful that we're not reading something into the bible that's not there there's nothing that implies that angels don't have a sex in that passage. In fact, other parts of the Bible indicate what about the angels most likely? That they are what? Male. Exactly. Gabriel, Michael. We talk about all the angels. They, they always, when they appear, when they, they make themselves visible to mankind on the earth in the scriptures, how are they always presented? As men. Uh, so, if we're going to draw some conclusions, then it's possible that all the angels in heaven are male. But there again, we don't have that clear indication in Scripture, so we can't draw that as a definitive conclusion. It's a lot closer to truth, though, than to say that they have no gender, no sex whatsoever. 
So we have to be very, very careful about that. Another, another uh, thing to consider, go, look at John 20. John chapter 20. Uh, read verse uh, 19, somebody, please. Okay. So, many will read this passage, and they will conclude from this that Jesus dematerialized, floated through the door, and rematerialized as a being that they saw and were able to communicate with. Is that what the text tells us? What does the text say happened? What happened here? The disciples were locked inside of a room, and then they looked and saw Jesus. Is that accurate? Are there any more details about Jesus? How he got there? None whatsoever. Is it possible that he skated through the wall and just kind of showed up? Sure, it's possible. Is it possible that he simply appeared? Yeah, that's possible. Was it simply? Uh, was it possible that he was he was there already? Yeah, that's possible. The the problem is that we don't have those details, and therefore, to draw any conclusions about what happened there would be uh, speculation. When we go to the Bible, we ought not speculate. We run into all sorts of error when they do that. Now, these ones that I'm pointing out, they may be of little consequence, but when you look at bigger issues, and we'll look at some in a minute, it can become of uh, very grave consequence because uh, we can be led into some false theologies that eventually might even lead us into um, heresy. So we have to be very, very careful about how we read uh, the Scriptures and not reading into them things that are not there. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Now, not only do we have problems when we seek to draw too many implications, too many conclusions from the Scriptures, but we also face the problem of making sure our implications, the, thing, the conclusions we are drawing, are squared with the things that are very clear, the things that are explicit. Uh, so when an implication is drawn from something that's not really clear and it contradicts something that is very clear, um, that pretty much solves it, right? We're wrong. <laughs> and so we use this term, and this is very important and something that I hope you'll remember, is, is that Scripture interprets Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. In other words, if I have a theological problem, if I'm reading something that I just can't quite wrap my mind around because it's vague, it's very hard to understand, I need to go find other places in Scripture that talk about the same thing, especially in those books of the Bible that are didactic in nature, those teaching parts of the Scripture. It's very, very important that I let Scripture tell me what Scripture says and not come to my own conclusions that may very well be false. And we can draw some conclusions that sound really, really good and really, really spiritual. But if they're wrong, they're wrong. They mean nothing. So we have to be very careful here. Um, let me give you an example of this. With regards to the question of man, fallen man's moral ability to turn himself to Christ unaided 
by the power of the Holy Spirit. So many will argue uh, from the book of John in chapter 3. So let's look there. John 3.15. Someone read that for us. Okay. What is that passage telling us? Okay. Is that passage telling us that anybody can believe and respond to Christ on his own? Is that what the Bible says? Is that what that says? Okay. Um, Does the the word whoever imply that every person everywhere has the moral ability to respond to God. Is that what that means? Um, (coughs) We can't draw those conclusions, can we? We have to analyze this a little bit more. We want to ask the question, what does he mean by whoever believes? Does he mean whoever will believe or whoever... um, on their own beliefs or whoever God has caused to believe. What does he mean by that? We can't simply read this one verse and draw all these conclusions about man's ability or inability to believe on Christ. Uh, there's some implication there that we need to draw out and to try and understand. So let's look at this a little more in depth. Whoever believes may in him have eternal life. Is that what is explicitly said? Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Is that what your version says? Yeah. That's that's what the ESV says. What is your what does your say? Okay. This is a Greek grammar thing, you'll just have to take my word on. The proper translation there is may have eternal life. In other words, it's implied that there is a possibility for man to be enabled to be saved, to have eternal life. So this teaches explicitly that all that are in the category of believers will be in the category of those who have eternal life. In other words, whoever believes, Christians, will have eternal life. That's all this verse is saying. Christians will have eternal life. That's John 3.15. Does anyone disagree with that? I don't think so, but this verse has been used to draw the conclusion that everyone has the full moral ability to make their own decision about whether or not they are going to love, trust, and follow Jesus. Well, if we understand man's fallen condition, man has no desire to love, trust, and follow Jesus. No desire whatsoever. It is God who does a great work to transform the hearts of man in order to bring him to that position. So, in other words... If we divide this verse and say part A is the whoever believes and part B is those who have eternal life, all of A equals B. Everyone who believes has eternal life. It's that simple. So this says nothing about what it takes to believe, who will or who will not believe. 
And in fact, elsewhere in the scriptures, we read something that will help us to understand that. And this is where I'm getting. We need to read the rest of scripture to help us understand. Go to John 6. Someone read verse 65. Thank you. So does this passage say anything explicitly about those who will come to Christ? Very clear, right? Who will come to Christ? Those who have been granted him by the Father. Very, very clear. Does that help us understand 315 a little bit more? I think it does. It does say something very clear about man's ability to come to Christ. Man in and of himself does not have the moral ability nor desire to simply come to Christ. It is a work of God the Father drawing them, showing them Christ that they would have and receive Christ. Um, So the passage plainly states that no one can... No one is able. But there is a clause in there that says, unless. No man is able, period. That's a universal statement, right? No one is able. But then we get this statement of, unless. Unless what? Unless the Father draws them to Christ. Unless they're granted to Christ by the Father. So explicitly what's being taught here is that the necessary prerequisite, the necessary grounds that must be walked, the necessary foundation that must be laid before a person is able to come to Christ is that what? It's been granted by the Father. Now, there's another place in Scripture, and I'll put this out there to see if you, how well you know your Bibles, that will tell us those who've been granted by the Father, or when that happened, let's just say that. When were God's people granted by the Father to the Son? When did that happen? Before the foundations of the earth. Where do we read about that? Ephesians chapter 1. Very good. You were very close. Ephesians chapter 1. God elected us. God chose his people before the foundations of the earth. And in doing so, he has determined those who would be saved and those who would be revealed to the Son in what we read in John chapter 6. And then to help us conclude, John chapter 3, that whoever those are that were chosen before the foundations of the world to be revealed to the Son by the Father will receive, will inherit eternal life. Does that make sense of the whole verse? It's a lot easier to come to that conclusion when we look explicitly at what the Scriptures teach, right? As opposed to coming to one verse and saying, well, this says whosoever, so whosoever is everybody. Well, not really. If it was everybody, it would say everybody, but it says whosoever or whoever in our modern vernacular. Whoever believes has eternal life. I don't disagree with that at all. 
If you're truly a believer in Christ, you're granted eternal life. But how does that happen? That's the question of the day. And so we have to be very, very careful in drawing out these implications that we read them in accordance with the Bible. And if you didn't know it, that whole issue we just went through has stirred a little bit of controversy in the church over the last several hundred years. Why? Because of how we do or don't read the Bible. I prefer to read the Bible and seek to know what the Bible says for itself and not to add in my own ideas. Now, I say that knowing full well that as a fallen, corrupted human being, there will be times that as I read the Scripture, I am going to read into the Bible what I want it to say. There's probably a few things that I believe about the Bible that are actually wrong. Maybe. And when I get to heaven, the Lord will show me that. But I think that there is plenty that is clear in the scriptures, and our confession talks about this, that can be known and should be believed, particularly the elements that are the essentials of the faith. So the gospel itself, our understanding of the Trinity, our understanding of the divinity of Jesus, the virgin birth of Jesus, all of these essential doctrines that make Christians Christians and that make those who oppose those things to either be in cults, false religions, um, pagans, or whatever. So we have to be careful not to become arrogant about how we read the Bible. At the same time, we also have to understand there is a way to read the Bible that we can understand it with clarity and not have to draw all of our own implications. There are 66 books in this Bible Lots and lots and lots of information. Uh, We need to use it instead of just kind of skimming through it and drawing our own conclusions in the end. Um, Let's think of it. Let's do another example. Look at 1 Corinthians 7. Someone read for us verse 38. Okay. That is talking about a man who marries the one that he is engaged to or betrothed to. So what is is Paul saying in this verse? Is Paul implying here that marriage is a bad thing? That people shouldn't get married? That he's opposed to marriage? He's not, is he? Sure, but but Mark, you're using other parts of the Bible to help us understand this. You're right. If we look at the whole picture of Scripture, there's no possible way that we can understand this to mean that Paul is saying... Yeah, get married if you have to, but let me tell you, it's far greater if you don't. In fact, we can look at the writings of the Apostle Paul himself, even in this very chapter, to tell us that that's not Paul's perspective. He's simply saying that when two people get married, that you have other responsibilities that someone who's not married doesn't have. And he's using himself as an example to say, I'm able to go out on these missionary journeys and be persecuted and thrown in prison and everything I'm doing for the sake of the gospel that a man who's married may not be able to do because he has other obligations with the wife and possibly children. That's all. That's all he's saying. 
The only way I know that is by reading the rest of this passage, by understanding what Paul has said elsewhere, and by understanding what the Bible says as a whole. As Mark pointed out, the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis, we see Adam and Eve in the garden. And Adam is naming animals, giraffe, armadillo, snake, raccoon. And then all of a sudden he sees woman and he breaks out in song. Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. If you read this in the Hebrew, it is a poetic utterance. He is, uh, he is reciting poetry and he's wooing this woman to him all of a sudden that he has seen. And so all of a sudden it turns from I'm naming animals to I have found the one. She is suited for me and I for her. And so it's very clear in the scriptures that Paul is not teaching that we shouldn't be married. It's quite the opposite, in fact, but he is simply pointing out the fact that there will be those who are single, they have a specific purpose, and he himself is fulfilling that purpose. And that is the point of what he's saying. So we could go on. There are many, many different places in the Scriptures that we could read and see this play itself out. Um, but the... Uh, hopefully the principle here is clear. Any questions about any of that or thoughts or other examples perhaps? All right, we have five minutes and we'll jump into uh, the fifth rule. Determine carefully the meaning of words. We've already done a little bit of this tonight. Now, believe it or not, regardless of what some want to tell you, words have meaning. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Uh, The little uh, children's rhyme, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, is a lie. That's not true, is it? We've all been hurt by other people's words. Um, That's because words have meaning. They have very clear meaning sometimes. And so it's very important that we determine what words mean as we read. We discussed this a little bit when we talked about context. When I write you a letter, I'm hoping that when you read that letter, you're understanding what I'm trying to communicate with you. In other words, as you read the letter, you're looking at it and saying, I wonder what he means by this. Instead of asking, what do I want this to mean for me? What does this mean to me? It doesn't matter what it means to you. It matters what I wrote and how I meant it. But we've all been in situations where we've said something, right, or written something and someone else interpreted it wrongly and that turned into some kind of problem that we never intended. If you're married, that's happened maybe once, maybe twice, (laughs) twice every 10 years. Not yet. You haven't had that problem? 30 years of marriage, no problem. I'm impressed. (laughs) not yet tonight yeah (laughs) clarifying statement so it's very important as we read the scriptures like we would anything else that we determine carefully the meaning of words this isn't a popular thing in our culture believe it or not there is a worldview Uh, that is very prominent called postmodernism. And the postmodern thought is, if something is true for you, then that's fine. It's true for you, but that may not mean it's true for me. What does that say about truth? 
there's no absolutes, and in the end, it may not be true. I don't want a brain surgeon or an architect who doesn't believe in absolute truth. I don't want a man cutting open my skull to operate on my brain who says, you know, everything I learned in school, they tell me I'm supposed to cut here. That's true for them, but not for me. I'm going to go back here and take out this part of the brain. We have to understand what the writers of the Bible meant, not what we hope they mean, not what we want them to mean. We want to know what they meant, period. And so it's very, very important that we consider the meaning of words. People make fun sometimes of uh, preachers, and I admit some do it overkill, and I hope I don't. But when we stand behind the pulpit and say, this word in the Greek or this word in the Hebrew means this, and we kind of expand on that a little bit, um, that's important sometimes. Because our language, the English language, sometimes doesn't have a one-for-one translation of a specific word. And so we need to expand on that a little bit. Where our English translations might help us by kind of pointing to a general meaning of something, it's really a big help to us when we can start to understand a little bit more of what the biblical writers meant in the language they were writing. Because sometimes single words in the Greek can convey entire ideas. But when those words are translated into the English, it's simply a generic word that we try to use to make conclusions. So, again, words matter. Let me give you, uh, let me give you an example of this, and we will talk uh, much more about this uh, next Wednesday. Um, there are certain words that have multiple meanings. We have to be very careful that we understand what those meanings are. So, for example, when we read in the book of Genesis the word day, what does day mean? Okay, it means a 24-hour period. What else can day mean? Okay, sun up to sundown. Okay, back in the day. Anything else? Okay. Right. So it can mean a very specific 24-hour period. It can mean in general that, yeah, sun up, sun down during the day. When we say we make the distinction between day and night, uh, we could mean back in the day, back then, or someday, something coming. So when we read Genesis and it says... God did this and that, and it was completed, and that was day one. Which day does he mean? Well, just to ease your hearts, I do believe he means a 24-hour time period. I think that's clear in other parts of the Scripture. But this word day, if we dig below the surface a little bit, means a little bit, can mean a little bit more than simply our understanding of a day. It can mean other things. And believe it or not, that word itself has caused a lot of controversy and a lot of disagreement in the church. Now, I think uh, Jesus and the apostles clarify for us, and again, using didactic parts of the Scripture to interpret historical narrative, but 
there is something very clear there that we need to help be helped by and uh, that helps us to define that. So um, there are many other words, and we'll get into those, um, the word will or the word all or the word justify. All of these words that we know uh, from the scriptures, they have multiple meanings, and we need to be careful that we define them appropriately according to what the writers of the scripture meant. So we will get more into that next Wednesday. Any questions before we conclude tonight? Any other thoughts? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Something uh, I've, I've sought to do more and more and be more um, diligent in, in talking to people, is when I hear them say something that I don't quite understand, is to repeat it back to them and say, do you mean whatever? Any good argument you're going to have with a person, you're not going to argue from your perception or understanding of what they might be saying. You want to deal with the facts of the reality. It might very well be that you actually agree with them, but you're just misunderstanding. Um, How many times have we been in a disagreement with someone, and then in the end when it finally gets sorted out after we've, uh, we've gone back and forth and we're sweating and red and everything else, and we finally say, well, we agree. What are we arguing about? Well, if we just sorted it out in the beginning and said, do you mean whatever, then uh, we probably could have saved ourselves a lot of time and effort. Um, So um, I've sought to teach my students at ECS that when we are dialoguing with someone who we disagree with, it's very, very important that as we talk to them, we clarify the meaning of their words uh, before we go in a full frontal assault to try and take them out uh, with our disagreement. We might have a lot more ground together than we thought. So a very important. Good good point, Mark. Anything else? All right. Well, let me pray, and we'll be dismissed. Lord, thank you again for tonight. We're so grateful for the opportunity to gather, uh, to look in your word, uh, to have a greater understanding of how to read and understand and study your word. I pray, God, that we're not here tonight simply to hear these things and, uh, and leave and not think about them anymore, but rather that you are using these things in our lives to help us to dig and study and understand the Scriptures with more clarity, not so that we can uh, be more intellectual, not so that our knowledge expands, but so that we can know more of who you are, what you have done, what you are doing, Lord, we we want to know more of Jesus. And I pray that through all of this, that you are giving us the tools, that you are equipping us uh, to, um, to have the tools in order to faithfully read the Scriptures, understand the Scriptures, and apply the Scriptures to our lives. So give us clarity. Help us by the Holy Spirit. We pray, God, that you would illumine the text for us, that we not have to draw our own inferences as to what the Scriptures mean but that you would show us what they truly do mean, that we can believe what is right and true and not drift off into error or myth. Lord, help us, guide us, give us clarity, and help us to know uh, according to your principles and your purposes for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a good night.